This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On Air is back for another week, live for two hours on Sportsnet 650 every Saturday. I'm Israel Fair, staff editor at The Athletic, based in Vancouver. And I'm Alex Blair, former feature producer with Hockey Night in Canada, based in Calgary. You can text us at 650-650 or find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair. Alex's handle is ACPWBlair. Coming up on today's show, we'll talk to Irfan Gaffar from the fourth period. But first, Alex, let's dive into the week's headlines. Lots of, lots of stuff to dig into locally and nationally this week. Yes, uh, there was a lot to talk about prior to Thursday night and Friday. Uh, I think the events both in Calgary and especially in Vancouver yesterday uh, will dominate most of the show. Uh, Izzy and I will have a chance to sort of break down what you may or may not have already heard from Jim Benning yesterday. Um, But more importantly, we'll, we'll sort of peel back the layers and explain why yesterday was so significant on sort of a, a bigger concept for this organization and for ownership and for management in general. Um, let's start with the Canucks, Izzy. I know we're going to dive into it at more depth uh, next segment, and you know we'll unpack it as well with Earth at 1 o'clock. But just really quickly off the top, um, maybe your biggest takeaway from what was a highly anticipated press availability from, from GM Jim Benning yesterday. Um, yeah, just give me your biggest takeaway, and, and were you surprised at what we, what we heard? It feels like not just what uh, we heard from Jim Benning, but the buildup to some sort of availability at this time of year or at this time of the season has been a pretty consistent thing where the team struggles, um, (laughs) the team struggles, and then there, there is kind of silence from ownership, silence from the management team. There's external pressure about having some sort of update and it seems to always play out the same way. And it, to me, it was almost Groundhog Day. As weird as this season has been, with all the factors that make it such a unique year, what played out Friday morning was a deja vu to me. I have seen Jim Benning in front of a Canucks dais trying to address a season that's gone off the rails. And his talking points were the exact same as they always are. We need more time. If I could make a trade to shake things up, um, then maybe we'd be in a different position. And at some point, if I'm a Canucks fan, as much as you could love the acquisitions or the drafting of Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, you you got to look at yourself and, and wonder what exactly uh, is, is going on with this group and, and what the plan is if every single time it's we need a little bit more time and I need to do some things because it, it, it clearly doesn't appear like uh, there is any sort of introspection here about maybe why the plan of we need some trades to shake things up hasn't worked out. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, I was stunned. I'll, I'll be honest. Yesterday was a um, was an uh, was a very significant moment in this franchise, but probably the last ten years, the tenure. Um, it was basically. I'm not sure how you can continue with Jim Benning after yesterday. It was, um, you know, he needed to outline a plan. The season to this point has been a disappointment. That's that's not debatable. We expected to hear, you know, him acknowledge that. Um, he acknowledged it, but there were a lot of excuses attached to it. 
But the, the shocking thing for me is I I was very unclear as to the direction of this team leading in, and I felt like there would be some clarity coming out of it. And I'm not sure if it's possible, but I think I'm more confused now than when we went in. And it's very clear that, um, you know, when, when Jim said we live day to day, I mean, that's... I looked at Jim Benning too sitting there and listen, Jim, it's not Jim's strength. So it's an organizational failure to have nobody above Jim Benning who is more public facing and to have him be sort of the mouthpiece and the messaging for this organization and specifically for ownership. Yeah. But when it became clear to me yesterday that that Jim sort of feels like it's dead man walking, you know, and listen, What's Jim supposed to do? Jim has, his body of work is his body of work. There have been some successes, but I think at this point, it's very clear that he is not the man to take this team forward. That His strengths have been in, in sort of at the draft table. This is now a asset management job. And that has very clearly been one of his weaknesses. But to have him have to sort of address the you know, the media and therefore the fan base in which in the way in which he did and have sort of the lack of a plan. Um, It seems to me that, you know, I'm not saying he's trying to get fired, but I think he knows that the end is here. And look, he's not going to quit. If he quits, he's, you know, he's not entitled to the remainder (laughs) of his salary. That that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. (laughs) No, exactly. And, and what I took away from yesterday is that Jim is what Jim is. I think we can all see his resume. You can point out the strengths and the weaknesses and sort of the hits and the misses, and we will do that in the next segment yeah. at a little more depth. But this is now on ownership. you know. And the only reason that Jim stays in that role to the remainder of the season is a financial decision or lack thereof by ownership. And you know that's becoming very clear that the ownership group here is not prepared to spend any money. It's why Travis Green and his entire coaching staff do not have a contract. That is, that's that's not a Jim Benning decision. That has been taken out of Jim's hands. That is ownership. And it's very clear at this point that the Canucks need a new voice or voices because I do think that there's a lot of validity. And I know we'll get into this with Irfan Gaffar at one o'clock, but the Canucks need a president and they need a general manager. Um, it's it's very clear in a Canadian market that I think that that's the model they need to go with. But it's pretty clear that, you know, I'm not sure, you know, J- Jim can't be the guy going forward if that's the messaging to the fans. Um, and, you know, it was outlined yesterday, the significant, the significant decisions for this organization, and they start with the contracts for Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes this summer. And we'll get into that next segment as well. But... To sort of hear Jim yesterday kind of talk through it, it's, oh, you know, I know ownership was trying to get to the offseason with Jim in that seat, but what you heard yesterday, I'm not sure that that's that's no longer possible. And if they try to carry it out, this is going to start to um, hurt an already difficult reputation that this ownership group has. We will dig into this uh, at much greater depth uh, in the next segment, also in our conversation coming up with Irfan Gaffar. Speaking of making a change, the Calgary Flames uh, went back uh, to the olden days (laughs) to make a move uh, in their coaching staff. Out Jeff Ward, who took over as interim coach last year, uh, was made permanent after they showed pretty nicely in the bubble, uh, at least pushing Dallas and and, and taking a series against Winnipeg. And... uh, Started the season pretty brightly, but 
it's been a roller coaster since then. So in comes Daryl Sutter. Uh, this is now the second coaching change that we've seen in the Canadian division so far this season. We saw Claude Julien replaced in Montreal. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago as well. So uh, Daryl Sutter back in business, uh, of course, uh, you know, longtime Calgary coach, moved on to L.A. and had great success with the Kings winning Stanley Cups. Uh, a blast from the past for, for, for Calgary. What, what did you make of the, of the, the, the move to bring in Daryl Sutter? Honestly, I, I like it, and I think it's been really it's been received very well here in Calgary. And I'll say this. Um, it's clear that they had looked at Daryl Sutter going back to when Bill Peters um, was uh, let go. Um, for whatever reason, the timing wasn't right there. It sounds like it was more on Daryl's side of things than it was on sort of Brad Trilliving and, and the Calgary organization. I think they revisited it with Daryl Sutter again at the end of the season before they sort of decided to remove the interim tag from from Jeff Ward. Um it's, it's clear that Jeff Ward and, and people in Vancouver will relate to this. Jeff Ward was in over his head. Um, there were a lot of, I was getting a lot of Willie Desjardins vibes from just his sort of coaching style and his sort of line deployment and roster deployment. And it was very quickly becoming apparent that he was not the, the coach to sort of squeeze out the potential from this group. And this has been a group that we talked about last week that you know has has consistently underperformed since that 2015 playoff run you know when when they were a young group um and look i think scotty rintoul put it perfectly yesterday daryl sutter is a heart defibrillator he is the paddles that you put on the chest to shock a body back to life and the the question in calgary has always been what really is this group on paper they look good you know, I know you like them on paper too, isn't I right? do, yeah. And they have consistently underperformed. And if I look across the sort of coaching landscape and resumes, I'm not sure you could find a coach who, in a short period of time, can squeeze the maximum out of a group. And, and Daryl showed it in LA. That was a group that, you know, in theory was there and then very quickly became a powerhouse, won two Stanley Cups in three years, four years? Yep, three years. Yeah. And, you know, I look at this and think this was, this is Brad Living's last bullet. You know, um, I think he tried to change the roster, but the realities of COVID and making trades, I don't think that he was able to do anything that could have a significant impact on, on the Flames. And so, you know, he's forced to make his fourth coaching change. This is now the fifth coach in Calgary since he took over in April of 2014. Mm-hmm. And four of those he's made himself. He, in, he inherited Bob Hartley. But he's made four coaching changes. You'd have to think this is the last one. The Flames have 32 games left here. They're on the outside of the playoffs looking in, but they're they're just behind Montreal. It'll be interesting to see what Daryl Sutter can do in 32 games. Um, I will say this. If, if, he can, if he can turn this group around, to me, outside of Toronto playing well, I think the Northern Division is still fairly open, and I still really like Calgary on paper. And you look at the L.A. situation... You know, he took over that team mid-season and they won a cup. I'm not I'm not saying Calgary's going to win a cup, but I could see them, if they can turn this around, I, I could see them making a run to the North Division final because I do think they have that much talent and depth on their roster, but it'll be up to Daryl to see if he can get it out of it. Yeah, um, I like their pieces, but it's not the... It's not the seamless sort of, you know... Uh, 
especially in the bottom six, let's say, uh, because they, they've got the number one D-man, though. Giordano's older now. They, in theory, have you know, the pieces up the middle in Monaghan and Backlund, though your mileage may vary on how highly you rate those guys in those certain spots. So how how do you feel about Sean Monaghan as a number one center? How do you feel about Michael, Michael Backlund as a number two center at this point in their careers? And they've got legit playmaking or uh, dynamic wingers in Kachuk and Goudreau. And like that's kind of the building block. And they went out and they paid Jacob Markstrom a lot of money to be their goalie. He's now run into some injury issues, which is uh, something that did happen to him in Vancouver as well. Um, but it's building out the rest of that that group. And I think I like some of the, the pieces lower in the lineup. Uh, I mean, yep. people in Calgary, Calgary have been talking about Sam Bennett forever. Uh, we've certainly seen in the playoffs how he plays and how he looks when he's engaged. Uh, you even look at a younger player like Dylan Dubé, who has played very well against the Canucks. Uh, so when I've seen him most often, he's definitely shown that he can make an impact. Um, and it's on a coach now in, in Daryl Sutter, which, as you said, Alex, has a lot of experience in this area in taking those pieces, maybe doing some stuff in an unorthodox way, but clearly just trying to play it straight up for the Flames, as they've been doing for the most part of the last five or six years, has not worked. And here's, here's yeah, Bradtree Living's final bet, taking in, bringing back Daryl Sutter, uh, longtime connections to that, to that part of the country, that franchise in particular, and trying to make a run of it. And it's interesting that Calgary has followed in the footsteps of Montreal, another team that, uh, while maybe less stable than Calgary from a you know win-loss perspective in the last number of years because uh, they had that horrible season when they ended up picking in the top three in the draft, um, these are two groups, these are two teams that feel like They've got some runway here to try to make something of this division, to try to make something of their core group. And as good as Toronto has looked, um, they're not unbeatable. And they, they, these nope. two teams are trying. And it's on the it's on the opposite ends. In Montreal, it's bringing in a younger coach who has been there. He's familiar with the team to try to bring some more energy to the group than maybe Claude Julien was able to. And uh, I, I'm sure you've seen the Alex Burrow stuff out of Montreal and the impact that he's already making in practice, just the energy that he is bringing. And when it comes to Calgary, it's taking a guy who's been in the trenches for a long time as an NHL coach uh, who has, he's divisive, I, I suppose, as uh, his methods are probably divisive. But if you point at the results, especially the results, uh, at the beginning in LA, this is what these teams are in this for. The, there's only one thing that really matters at the end of the day, and it's winning the Stanley Cup. And they're going here. They're taking. They're, he's going to go in with a, a young-ish group. Uh, not a. You know, they're not super young. They're not as young as, as the stars in, in Vancouver or the stars in Toronto. But they're they're young enough that there's still some room to mold their games. And he's going to probably take some unorthodox methods here to try to get the most out of whatever this group has to win hockey games, to make the playoffs and see if they can go on a run. Yeah, he's going to be demanding. He is going to demand accountability. And, you know, much like on the farm, he is going to sift through that roster and figure out where the crap is and where the stuff that can can stick around is. And um, you and I have talked that we have been big fans of Matthew Kachuk. And obviously, you know, at this point, Matthew Kachuk, um, you know, it's no secret his, his season's gone a little bit sideways. Um, there's a lot of talk about the, the players only meeting after the incident in Toronto. And, you know, I think Daryl 
Daryl's going to give this team an identity, whether they like it or not. And right now, that's one of the big things that you can look at Calgary and say, you know, you look down their roster and you're like, okay, there's a lot of good pieces there, but I don't know what their identity is. And Daryl Sutter is very quickly going to, you know, whether they like it or not, he is going to give them an identity. He's going to give them roles and he's going to tell them how they're going to play. And they're either going to get on board or, you know, they're going to get shipped out. Um, Before we move on, I do think it's interesting because... Um, the next 32 games, I think, could have a big impact on, you know, what we see from uh, whether Brad Treliving is to be the GM going forward. But one of the GMs that is out there is uh, Dean Lombardi, who obviously is the guy that brought Daryl Sutter to L.A. And if there is to be a coaching move, um, well, Daryl's got a three-year deal, so Daryl, I don't think, is going anywhere. But if if ownership decides to go in a new direction, there is somebody out there who would be a top candidate, whether it's the Flames or anyone else looking for a GM, who has you know fairly close ties and a successful history with Daryl Sutter. Mm-hmm. So I think that's worth mentioning and something for for Calgary Flames fans and and Flames and then whether it's the North Division or or if we go back to the Pacific Division, something yep. for them to keep an eye on. So. Um, we're at the halfway point of the NHL season today for the Canucks and other teams will hit that going forward. Um, give me your sort of a couple of surprises and give me a couple of like disappointments as we're at the midway point here of the NHL season. Yeah, sure. I think the biggest surprise at this point um, outside of the Canadian division has to be Florida, right? Uh, they've been a team that has been identified as on the rise for a really long time. Uh, they had gotten a couple of playoff appearances, but they weren't able to really build off of that um their top end players barkov huberdo are, are guys that uh are, are getting to be quite well known and uh you know they've they've been in the mix in a division that um is maybe top heavy especially when you look at detroit and nashville not yep. being all that good uh but chicago's also been a, a pretty nice surprise uh but i think for me florida and they're doing it in large part not because of sergey bobrovsky <laughs> Right. No, well, and, and when you think about how Florida started the year, there was all that drama around Keith Yandel and, you know, right. what was yeah. going to go on. And, um, you know, Joel Quenville's done a really nice job. They're right at the top of that group. Um, I mean, Tampa's leading the group, but the four playoff teams in that division are Florida, Carolina, and Chicago, along with Tampa. So, you know, I would say that in some ways, Florida, Carolina, and Chicago, those are all surprises for me. Um, and I think it's it's interesting to look at you know, teams like Chicago, teams like Minnesota, teams like LA, even the Rangers to a degree, This, those are teams that I think the Canucks need to start thinking about because I think there was this feeling like the Canucks were the young next team and they are potentially. Yeah. But one of the reasons why right now is so critical is there are some other teams that are, you know, I think most Canucks fans would think are two or three years behind us in a rebuild and they've had a bit of a jump start and you know we'll get to chicago because they had a couple significant things this this week with patrick sure. kane scoring his 400th goal and also the announcement late this week that brent seabrook he didn't use the word retire because he will still get his his paycheck but no he's no longer physic- able to play yeah he's physically unable he will not return to the blackhawks which is going to have a sin- significant impact on their cap sort of situation because he, i think he had another four years at like 6.5 and, you know, unfortunately, um, Father Time has caught up to Brent Seabrook fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll dive into that because, you know, Brent's a good BC boy. And um, yeah. he has had, in some ways, I think he was a very underrated member of that Chicago dynasty. 
Um, so we'll unpack that sort of after 1.30 as well. But um, WHL, let, let's touch on this because, yeah. you know, one of the conversations that's going to happen, it's in some circles in Vancouver, it's already started to happen, is the NHL draft. And whether it's going to be in June, whether it's going to get pushed back to December, or even if they're going to do a double draft next June. Mm-hmm. Um, the WHL announced this week that they, uh, they have been given approval through the BC Public Health. They're going to do a sort of bubble set up in both Kamloops and Kelowna with the five BC teams. Um, I guess this is good news, I assume, for everyone involved in junior hockey, for the kids, and in theory for the NHL teams that need to scout these kids at some point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, the impact that it'll have on on moving the draft. Uh, that seems to be still very much up in the air. Um, the reporting done there is that there are people on kind of every side, though if they're split, it's between doing a midseason draft and doing a double draft. The, the, the talk out of the scouting world has been that it's going to be close to impossible to have a draft this summer based on the number of prospects who will not have been playing. And so, yes, it's good that the WHL teams, the teams in BC are going to get some games. But to me, this is just the start of kind of resetting the the, the scouting world, the prospect world, uh, getting these players some games, getting the scouts a few viewings and making that mid-season January or December draft the more realistic possibility. Yeah, and and I think it's, listen, everyone's been out and impacted by COVID. We're coming up on kind of the one-year anniversary when, you know, the bomb dropped, so to speak. Um, a lot of those kids haven't had a chance to play competitive organized hockey in over a year. And um, when you look at it in the big picture, it's a fairly small piece in the greater global sort of health concern. But those are still kids that, you know, that's a big year of development for them. And I am really curious to see what the trickle down of this is. Cause when you think about it, you know, those years are so valuable. And I'm wondering if we're going to see a bit of a dip um, in sort of draft classes, if you will, at the NHL level, because kids have missed such a significant year of their development. Um, it may be nothing. They may be, you know, we're able to find their own ice time and be able to practice to some degree. Um, but in a lot of ways, and much like a lot of things with COVID, I think we may only realize the significance and sort of the trickle down effect in the years to come. Um, so let's, you know, we're wrapping up next segment. We're going to dive into all of the layers of the Canucks and the organization and the significance of yesterday. And really, I think we all expected to hear a plan going forward that we would be able to sort of pull apart, comment on. For me, the biggest surprise was there didn't seem to be a plan. So, you know, we've talked about it in weeks past, but I think there's a little bit more clarity now. We'll have a chance to sort of unpack this, you know, top to bottom. And, you know, joining us just after one o'clock will be Irfan Gafar, who's who's plugged in with this team. He'll also give us a bit of an update on uh, Elias Pettersson, who, you know, has been day to day with this upper body injury. Um, we haven't even talked about that Leafs Canucks, the victory <laughs> on Thursday night. So it shows you the um, it shows you the magnitude of what happened yesterday in Vancouver. Yeah, we've got a bunch of texts that we will get to uh, at the start of the next segment, a nice jumping off point for us to dive into the reaction to Jim Benning's news conference. As you said, Alex, the Canucks and the Leafs are playing again tonight. The Canucks did beat them on Thursday night. 
I think that most people even uh, I'm sure every Canucks fan is reveling in the fact that they beat Toronto regardless of circumstance. But to try to extrapolate that into something more when that was a team that was coming off of a back-to-back with travel, still outshot the Canucks for a big portion of that game. And the Canucks, you know, they got a couple of goals from Jake Vertanen, which was a a nice sight. We we closed up our show last week thinking that we might never see Jake Vertanen in a Canucks uniform again. He he scores a couple of goals um, against Toronto to get the Canucks a win. But as you said, uh, far from the top story in the market right now uh it's, and well it's and quickly team, if, yeah. if you do have if you do have questions if you're listening and there are things that you'd like us to touch on i mean izzy and i are going to try and unpack this for the next you know better part of an hour here we'll have uh Irfan gaffar join us for the second half hour um text in you know we'll, we'll we will try and answer your questions um 650 650 and we will we'll get to kind of what you want to know and um you know how you're thinking about what we heard yesterday from from jim benning all right yeah coming up next uh, we dive deep into the Jim Benning media availability, what we heard, what we thought, what you thought, as Alex said, text us 650-650, and we'll do that next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, and it's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It's time for Sportsnet Today. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On Air rolls on, Israel Fair and Alex Blair live, Sportsnet 650. Reacting to Jim Benning's mid-season media availability uh, on Friday morning. Uh, It's now Saturday afternoon, just ahead of the second game of a Canucks and Leafs series uh, pregame rolls on through us. Uh, Jamie Dodd coming on right after us with Canucks Central Saturday and then into the official pregame show and the, the game broadcast, which uh, starts at 4 p.m. Pacific time today. Uh, we're going to use this segment here to further unpack that Jim Benning media veil. We've got a bunch of texts in here, Alex, so you can always text us 650-650. Let me start with, with this one. Uh, it's come in from a number of people, Jeremy from Souk, Austin from Surrey, a, a couple of unsigned texts as well, basically asking if Jim Benning, if there is a scenario where Jim Benning would be demoted from general manager to head scout. Uh, my thoughts on that, while in theory makes sense, Jim Benning's successes as a general manager have come in at the draft that's just not something that i i I see it's not something that's really ever done uh especially for someone who's been around for a long time uh we have seen interim um situations off the top of my head with keith gretzky in edmonton who came on and you know ran the oilers for a few months before ken holland was hired but it's not in the best interest of the individuals from a business perspective to agree to that it's Again, I understand the premise behind it, and I agree that Jim Benning's great successes as a GM have come at the draft table, not just with the top picks in Pedersen and Hughes, but guys like Adam Gaudet, um, you know, go down the list, well, Thatcher, Thatcher Demko. Thatcher Demko, you know, like go, going back Later to... Later the draft, yeah. Yeah, like Jim's first draft in 2014, obviously Jake has has proved to be a bit of a miss, but his second round pick that year was was Thatcher Demko. And I know just before the break, we talked about the the Leaf game on Thursday night. Um, I'm not one, I'm not, I'm not one much for, for moral victories and stuff. The, the only positive that I took out of Thursday night's game, like the team played better. That's great. 
but in the in the grand scheme of things like it doesn't really matter because this year is already kaput you know the only thing that i took from it is that thatcher demko is showing the capability to be a number one goalie he's showing a little bit more of what we saw in the bubble and you look at thatcher's age with the compare that with the group of this core like thatcher's you know making a strong case that he can be the goalie to sort of hopefully take this core as they you know mature and evolve to you know their prime so that that was you know and and listen uh, i'm gonna pull it up here because i thought it was in ian mcintyre's article yesterday um which you can check out on sportsnet.ca he had a, a little paragraph in the middle and and really this is this is the gist of it um this impressive core almost entirely drafted and developed under benning is his greatest achievement as gm but the drop-off around these players is also the GM's greatest failure. And that's 100%. He has had some real hits at the draft table, and he was not in a position to draft first or second overall. Like, Pedersen was five. Hughes was seven. Um, Hoaglander they got in the second round. Demko was in the second round. Um, I think there's optimism about what Vasily Podkolzin can be. Um there were also some misses during that time. I think, you know, while Ole Ulevi has come along, you know, at a fifth overall pick, he is he has been a disappointment. Um, Jake Vertanen has been a disappointment. So, you know, but the core that has been built here is definitely Jim's, will be Jim's legacy. And he deserves credit for that. But when you look at the free agent signings, the contracts that he has signed or extensions, and asset management in general, it's hard to see this as being anything than an abject failure. And when you look at what the role of GM is going to dictate and require going forward, it's really hard to say it would be organizational negligence to have him continue in this role after seven years. There are a couple of texts, uh, and they are still pouring in 650, 650, that Speak to that one uh, here. LA Kings have 10 prospects right now. The Canucks have two. Uh, Jim Benning is very fond of saying that this is a young team. But uh, <laughs> they have filled out the rest of the roster with a lot of veterans. And, uh, you know, why even draft players if Benning will keep signing free agents who do not work out? Uh, and then uh, a, a text agreeing with you that if I, I agree with you that this overall situation with Jim Benning and the management team, there needs to be a change made. So this isn't, this is maybe more in line with how things should have gone or how things were supposed to go with Trevor Linden, uh, that if Jim Benning is the general manager, uh, th there needs to be someone as team president. Uh, but that's, that's a discussion that we can have just in general about the, the yep. um, structure of front offices. We just saw Pittsburgh, bringing Ron Hextall as the GM and Brian Burke as president of Hockey Ops. Uh, we both know that Mike Gillis, longtime Canucks general manager, has expressed interest in returning to working in the National Hockey League, but as a president of hockey operations, not as a general manager. And a lot of teams have their own um, interpretations of that role. You look at Toronto, the team the Canucks yep. are playing tonight, Brandon Shanahan, Kyle Dubas, um, Prior to that, Brandon Shanahan and Lou Lamorello. So there are different ways and different structures of this. Uh, but by and large, what we heard yesterday uh, is 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 not good enough. And it's been the, it's been the case for too many years now. Where there's two things that stick out to me. The first is from an entertainment perspective. Jim Benning getting out in front of the microphones, 
is not a good move for the entertainment product of the Vancouver Canucks. It is not going to get fans excited. And I'm talking about the average fan, not the fan that is really invested and cares about the prospects coming up. If someone in Vancouver who is not a diehard Canucks fan, you know, is flipping through channels or is flipping through the radio and happens to hear Jim Benning's press conference, there is absolutely nothing there that is going to excite people about the future of the Vancouver Canucks. That's one part of it. The second part of it is the process where guys like you and me and a lot of the very informed fans that are in this market and a lot of our also very smart and informed media colleagues can analyze the process. And you said it, Alex, where's the plan? There, there doesn't seem to be one. And every single time that there is an ask about a plan or even a re- revisionist history of this is something that you said prior, uh, it doesn't line up with what you're saying now. Uh, it, it shows me that Jim Benning and the management team are, are playing at least, they, they are approaching today's NHL like it was set up 15, 20, 25 years ago. He's often saying, if I could make a trade to shake things up, that's what I would do. That's really not what teams that are in the Canucks position need to make the jump. If you're the St. Louis Blues, for example, and you've got a good young core and a lot of solid players up front and on your blue line, and you have pieces and prospects to make a trade for Ryan O'Reilly, who is a legitimate impact player, a top six center, that's where, that's where you can find yourself, and the Blues go from a team that was a steady playoff contender to a team that ultimately goes on and, and wins the Stanley Cup. And this year has been pretty solid as well. Um, you, you marry those two things, and one thing, that, and I'll conclude here with this, Jim Benning often says that he owes something to the market and to the fans in putting an entertaining team on the ice. It is something that he often brings up. What I hear there is that that's something that he is probably being told, that we need to put an entertaining team on the ice, and he's taking his interpretation of that and going out and signing players like Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel, who on a good team have some, some degree of bringing an entertainment factor to the fourth line. From a process perspective, it doesn't make sense, and when the team is bad, and people in Vancouver, they want one thing above all. They want a team that can compete and win a Stanley Cup. That's yeah. it. That's the only thing. We can argue and debate and discuss and dissect 50 different ways of how teams get there, whether it's through the draft, free agency, making shrewd trades, where do you invest, how many coaches should you have. There's there so many avenues now uh, to investigate that. But right now, if we are just going to do the basic analysis, all people in Vancouver want, Canucks fans want a team that can compete for a Stanley Cup. Right now, there is there is no reason to have confidence that this group going forward is going to be able to do the small tweaks beyond uh, to what you said from Ian McIntyre's column, uh, the core that has been put in place that is at least a strong foundation, but the rest of it around it is just, there's, there's no reason for confidence. One of the things that I think Jim was correct about yesterday is that this team is two years away from actually being able to compete for a Stanley Cup. And... But that those decisions that put us in this that put the Canucks in this position were not made in the last three or four months. They were made in the last four years. You know, like here's the reality of the situation. We're gonna get into it because one of the topics yesterday with Jim was the pending second contracts for both Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. And listen, everybody knows that they're they're due a big race. And the question is 
Um, I guess the first question is, is, is it a short-term bridge deal or is it going to be a long-term deal? And, you know, depending on which path you choose, what's that number, what's that an annual average value going to, um, going to do? Here are the players that are coming off, that are unrestricted free agents at the end of this year. Like, they're coming off the roster for the Canucks. You got Brandon Sutter, Tanner Pearson. So you got two forwards in the top nine. And then on the back end, you've got Alex Edler, who rightly or wrongly is still a top two defender for this team. You've got Jordy Ben and, and Travis Hamanick, who are depth defensemen for this team. So you're losing five bodies off this active roster. However you want to determine Travis Hamanick, because he's sort of been in and out of the line. That's going to shed 17, just under 18 million in salary. So you're losing five roster spots and you're going to gain 18 million in 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 cap space. But Pedersen and Hughes right now are making sub a million, right? Like they're on what again, like 850, 900, right? They're on and they fit and, their bonuses, so it it goes yeah. a little bit higher than that. But it's it's not it's not a ton. It's not a ton more. It's it's not significant. But either of those contracts next year, like they're going to start with like Pedersen's not going to be below seven. He probably will be eight or north. What's well, Kachuk? Kachuk is seven. Kachuk is seven. For three years. On three years. And Pedersen, and, and we both like Matthew Kachuk as a player, but Pedersen's a center who has put up bigger numbers than Kachuk. Correct. And Hughes is going to be a little bit of a different case because right now, the closest comparables with Quinn Hughes in this sort of RFA market are actually, they don't really compare that well to Quinn Hughes. And in some ways, Kale McCarr, who's also up this year in Colorado, is yeah. going to be his closest comparison. Um, I did a, I called around a little bit this week to try and flush this out a little bit. And it's interesting because we all remember the summer with Kachuk, um, Besser, there was somebody else in that mix. Line and they Line A maybe. And they all kind of waited for the first domino to fall to, to reset the market. Mm-hmm. Quinn Hughes is going to reset the market. Kale McCarr potentially could. The, the The interesting thing that I learned yesterday is that Colorado has a very strict and diligent um, salary structure, one you'd like to see in Vancouver, and that the likelihood of Kale McCarr hitting a home run in this next deal is is fairly slim. And so Quinn Hughes is going to be, a, you know, looked at as, is he the one to reset the market? Um, I will say this. I, I have yet to come across a scenario where I can see long-term deals for either of these players. And I see it from both sides. One, I don't think the Canucks have the cap space for a roster next year to pay these guys north of $10 million a year, which is what it's going to require to sign them for seven or eight years. And on the flip side, I don't see Pedersen and Hughes in a flat cap pandemic era trying to commit to long-term with you know, an upcoming US TV deal with the financial realities that have, that have happened. So I'm not concerned that it's going to be a short-term deal. I would expect that it'll probably be, the standard has been three. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that with Barzell. We've seen it with Kachuk, uh, Besser, uh, Mikhail Sergachev, Charlie McAvoy. So that, that seems to be the industry standard, that they will get a three-year deal. What that number will be will be sort of the interesting part. I don't see bet if it's a three-year deal based on what the comparables are and talking to people around and the financial realities. 
I don't see either of those players making more than 10 million. Like right now, the bar is at 7 million. You can argue Pedersen's better than that. So mm-hmm. maybe he goes up to seven and a half. Maybe he goes to eight. Maybe he goes to eight and a half. Sure. But if he's not getting the term, it will be a sub 10 number. The only concern that I would have, and this is what happened to Austin Matthews in Toronto, is the threat of a bad offer sheet. Because if the Canucks are negotiating and, you know, let's say Quinn or Elias don't like the way it's going, it's not that the Canucks can't match the offer sheet. It's if somebody offers a suicide offer sheet, like of four or five years that walks them right to free agency. And the moment they sign that, the Canucks' only option is to match it, which basically gives the player exactly what they want, which is they'll get paid and they'll get walked right to free agency. It has no benefit for the team. So that's that's the only thing to be concerned about with the situation with Pedersen and Hughes. Mm-hmm. But And we saw you know, that with I, Sebastian Ajo in Carolina. Yes, I think that was a longer one. I, the, the, it's five years, I think. Five years. Yeah. But... You know, the Marner and and Matthews contracts in Toronto sort of, they were unique to the system in the sense that they weren't, they were sort of midterm. They weren't a bridge deal and they weren't long-term. They weren't the max, yeah. Exactly. So um, anyway, one of the reasons why yesterday was so important is it's it's clear that there isn't much of a plan. The Canucks roster is likely going to be worse next year. They're losing five players and they're basically going to have to take all that money to re-sign two players that are already on the roster. So the likelihood of a step back next season is very high. The following season, at the end of next season, they're going to clear off $25 million in cap space, and that includes the Luongo cap recapture, <laughs> which you can't blame Jim Benning for. Of all the things that are, you know, listen, Jim's getting blamed for a lot. The, the cap recapture, you can't blame on Jim, and in some ways you can argue it's not really even Mike Gillis's fault. That was a, a retroactive NHL decision. Yeah. But when people talk about two years... The reality is it's going to be at the end of next season that the Canucks have some cap flexibility and they can start to build around this young core. And that's where Jim was correct yesterday. It is, it may be a difficult reality setting in for some people, but that is the reality. And that's why yesterday was so key and why having a plan right now and starting to execute it now is so important. Because the earliest this team can start to do things is at the end of next season. If they waste any more time, it could be another season. Or a season after that, and now you're talking about wasting the prime years of Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, Quinn Hughes, and as Sad said yesterday, it's you're wasting the next ten years of this franchise. Worth mentioning a text in here from Neil, uh, and this is this is true. Quinn Hughes is not eligible for an offer sheet based on some salary cap stuff, um, correct, or some CBA stuff, I should say. Uh, so it's. Pedersen would be the one. Pedersen, obviously, on an open market, would get a lot of interest. Um, Neil also is sort of rebuffing the way that we feel about a lot of the Canucks prospects. Uh, I will say he's listing on this list Cole Lind, Nikita Triapkin, Jet Wu, Will Lockwood. I mean, if you're, if you're listing guys like that, you're, you're way down the list of players that are going to come in and make an impact. I've got time for Pud Colson being... Uh, penciled into a middle six role playing on a second or a third line to start his career. Um, look, Jet Wu looks like he could be an NHL player. Cole Lynn looks like he could be an NHL player. Those are those are pretty significant question marks. And uh, also, 
asking for our thoughts on on the depth players that were signed uh, at the time, saying that hindsight's twenty twenty. Look, uh, maybe it's not out there, but I've been against signing players like J. Beagle, Antoine Roussel, um, even Michael Furland uh, on principle. I don't believe that's how you build a team in the National Hockey League in the salary cap era. You can choose not to believe me. That's your prerogative. But clearly you are buying into something that the majority of the people, especially the people that listen to Jim Benning's media availability, uh, are losing confidence. And I would say even more importantly than losing confidence, are losing losing enthusiasm for this team and the direction it's going in. That's to me, uh, the biggest takeaway from from what we heard yesterday. There's just, there's no reason to buy in. Yeah, I, my response would be, I, um, and I forgive me, Izzy, what was the texter's name? Neil. Neil. Um, I, I actually would probably be maybe a little bit more on Neil's side. I see where, you know, listen, the Canucks have hit on their hot, their top-end draft picks or on a, on, um, a significant portion of them. Um, I think they've had a little bit of success in the second round. I, you know, we pointed out Hoglander and Demko, um, but I would agree with you that later in the draft they have not, you know, they have not found depth pieces at this at the at the rate that you would hope. So I, I do think that's a valid. Well, it's point. a tough it's a tough turnaround. You look at the teams, uh, you know, Chicago and L.A. and the teams that had won cups, even Pittsburgh to a certain extent. It's really difficult to keep turning and, and churning those players around that can drop into a lineup and play and. Um, the Canucks have, have had a few. Uh, you look at you know getting Tyler Mott in the Thomas Vanek deal, and he's proven yep. to be a guy that can can play an energy role in, in the bottom six, and you know earned himself a contract extension. But by and large, it's it's not what, it's not easy, the, and clearly it's been tough for this group. To, to his second point, and this was something I did want to ask you. Um, I don't know if you have cap friendly in front of you, but what is the best contract the Canucks currently have that Jim Benning signed? Because I, I, I do think that when you unpack on top of yesterday, it's hard, it's hard to find contracts that he signed that he's done a great job. And one of the topics that came out yesterday was the no movement um, restrictions that he's put. Like Jordy Ben got yeah. trade protection. Mm-hmm. Jay Beagle has trade protection. Like I'm I'm still not sure what the Canucks got out of that Jay Beagle deal. Jay Beagle got a good annual value. He got term four years, and he got trade protection. Like, you well, know. at the time it was uh, highly contested. Lots of people involved. That's what Jim Benning said. Right in 2018, uh, when when the deal was signed. Um, I mean, the, by default, I guess it's the Bo Horvat contract. <laughs> there aren't a lot of options. Yeah, and you that. know what? I was going to say. I think it's probably the Bo Hor- Horvat contract, and they held a hard line with with Bo on that one. You know, um, but quite frankly, um, you know, and this doesn't sound great. I think that there's a majority of the hockey world that looks at Vancouver, both the market and the current management and the ownership, and says. There's the team we can take advantage of. There's the team that we can, you know, uh, leverage. Uh, whether it's a stocking horse or whether that's how we can get our client paid. Um, you know, we had Craig Custance on. He had the, um, or sorry, Scott Burnside on. He had the the article on a couple weeks ago where we talked about the searching for GMs. Yeah. And one of the things in that article was that there's a very clear top 10 GMs in the league and there's a very clear bottom 10 GMs in the league. And... You know, this isn't recent news, but I think it's very clear which of those Jim Benning sits in. And when you look at the contracts on the roster that he signed, it's hard to find good value. 
Yeah, it's been it's been uh, getting reaction now for over 24 hours. Our text box here, 650-650, still filling in with thoughts about uh, the direction of this team and the, the lack of direction, it seems, uh, is coming from management. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to unpack that. Coming up next, Irfan Gaffar from the fourth period will join us to give his perspective on another crazy day in Canucks land. And uh, Irv's quite plugged in, as Alex said earlier in the show, uh, on the player side of things, uh, because there was an interesting text that we got um, from Phil and his fan about uh, how the players might react to this kind of thing. Uh, so we'll, we'll ask Irv about that. We'll dig into that more. And we'll do that next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, and you're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. This is on air, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, live Sportsnet 650 every Saturday. Coming up in a second, we will catch up with Irfan Gaffar from the fourth period, also a regular right here on Sportsnet 650. Worth mentioning, Canucks pregame rolls on through us. After us, it's Jamie Dodd with Canucks Central Saturday, and then the official pregame show with Satshaw Bik Nazar starts at 3, ahead of a 4 p.m. game against the Toronto Maple Leafs, Alex. This is usually like the Super Bowl for Canucks fans in the regular season. Uh, Canucks and Leafs, obviously we're getting a lot more this year than usual, uh, but usually that, uh, that trip for Toronto to Vancouver on a Saturday is a big deal, yet here we are diving deep into contract talk, in CBA talk, and direction talk, because that's, that's where Canucks fans are at right now. I think most Canucks fans want an answer to uh, the question of where, where is this team headed, and if if there is a plan in place for the, the group that's here, the, the, the parts and the pieces that have been put together that have people excited about the future of Canucks hockey. Well, and, and you look at it, um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the two coaching changes that have been made have been made in the North Division. Um, a lot of owners of sports teams, and not just in hockey, have looked at this year as just like, it, like the kid in class who just tries to keep his head down in the back and hopes he doesn't get asked a question. Like most teams are not going at it, going for it this year, but the spotlight and the pressure that the Canadian division has created um, has put a lot of pressure on Canadian teams. And um, yeah, I mean, our our friend Taj on Twitter, you know, mentioned that usually the four o'clock start is like a topic of discussion in this market. And yeah, we're not going to get to that today. Like it's a four <laughs> o'clock game. There's there's bigger things. It's an educated market. They understand you know, very clearly the challenges that this team's in and also what happened yesterday and why that's such a big deal. And that's why it was such a monumental day for the organization and why it shifted the focus very clearly on ownership. All right. Well, Earth is here. Gafar from the fourth period also heard regularly here on Sportsnet 650. What's going on, Earth? Thanks for taking the time. Educated market, hey? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> on its good days. I'm kidding. What's going on, boys? How you doing? How was brunch? Great. Love me some brunch. Excellent. Um, let's start here. Um, we had a quick chance to chat this morning. Uh, I yep. think there was there was a ton of anticipation in what we were going to hear from Jim yesterday. 
Um, where do you think he was most accurate and, you know, positive? Um, and where, what concerned you the most from what he said yesterday? It was like a really bad car accident. Like you kind of wanted to look away from it, but you just couldn't. Like it was, it was bizarre. It was just, I don't know, man. It was one of those things where, like, what did you really expect Jim Benning to go up there and say? Like, to be honest, like that was my first indication before he even spoke. It's okay. He's going to come up here. What's he really going to say? You know, it's the first time he's talked since obviously training camp. And uh, they, they, obviously the team has been through a lot. <clears throat> so then he comes out and, you know, kind of says what he says. And I think you can go a lot of different ways, right? You can go the whole Tanner Pearson angle where, you know, it's, you know, we want to get Tanner Pearson resigned. Uh, okay. I mean, I just, it's just weird to me. And then saying that, you know, we're going to take care of uh, Pedersen and Hughes after, after the deadline type of thing. I mean, those two should be your focus to be completely honest, you know, because re in reality, those two, what you think they're going to get is what's going to give you enough money to see what else you can do as an organization. So I think there's that aspect of it as well. And then obviously the, the day by day thing that was, you know, asked, um, that was an answer uh, he, he answered from a question about, you know, the playoffs. And obviously they're, mm -hmm. you know, going day by day. So I think that one kind of got taken a little bit out of context. But, like, honestly, guys, man, like, the whole thing was just, like, it was just bizarre to me. And it was it was just, yeah. And, like, I think everyone, like, you saw the reaction on Twitter from, from a lot of people. And it was all kind of the same. It was just like, what the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, man. It, it feels like we've seen this a, a handful of times with Jim Benning now. It's you know, tough pressers, uh, and I was saying earlier in the show to Alex, uh, it's not the first time where the team struggles, things get kind of quiet from management, there is a push to get a voice out there, and then that's what the message is. Uh, you know, disjointed, doesn't make a ton of sense, it creates more questions and answers. I mean, like, I, I think, Earth that most Canucks fans have more questions uh, than answers going into, or, or coming out of that presser than going into it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're, it's exactly, it's what's going to happen. It's what can happen. It's how are you going to make this team better? You know, you're going to end up locking up two guys, you know, two cornerstones of your franchise for hopefully a very, very long time, and they're going to get paid. So it's, do you as a, as a fan base and, and an ownership group and as an organization believe in the person that's, you know, in charge of doing this? And for the last seven years, I think that, you know, the plan was, it's, it can't be a seven-year plan. It just can't. It's got to be, you got to look at teams and the way that they're able to strike and strike while their superstars are young. And, you know, I'm going to use the, the Leafs, for example. Obviously, they paid their guys, but they went out and, you know, they got guys and they have contributions up and down the lineup. They signed veteran guys for, for really little to no money in, you know, Joe Thornton and, and Wayne Simmons. And, I mean, now you look at them, you know, they're one of the best teams in the North Division, if not the best, um, one of, probably one of the top teams in the league right now. And I just think that that model and the way that they went about and did things kind of worked for them. I think for the Canucks, it was just right now, it's, it's, they're at a situation where it's, are they going to be better next year? I don't know. I, I really can't answer that question, to be honest. And, and I think that that's why this fan base is so frustrated because you have these guys in this young core of, you know, Demko, Horvat, Besser, and Pedersen, Hughes, Hoglander, like Pod, uh, Vasily Podolskin, like Podolskin, he's coming in too. Like you have all these young guys and why can't you, why are you surrounding them with guys that you're paying too much money to? Right. And I think that that's why there's so much angst among this fan base about what's going on and, 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 and what happened yesterday and, and, and what was said. 
No, I, I think that's a good point. And um, I, th- I think Toronto is a good one because, you know, one of the things we heard a lot yesterday from Jim Murph was sort of excuses. Um, and one of them is is valid to a degree in the sense that nobody saw the pandemic coming. But I would argue that, you know, the young players that Toronto signed and, you know, you're looking at Nylander to a degree, but more, you know, more specifically Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, those contracts were signed just before the pandemic with the thought that, yeah, we're paying them a lot now, but the cap's going to go up for the next four or five years while they're under contract. And it hasn't. So in some ways, I would argue that Toronto's been as punished as anybody by the the reality of the pandemic. But, you know, very clearly from the beginning when, you know, even going back to Tim Laiwiki in 2013, he he put a plan in place. He brought leaders in, whether it was Brendan Shanahan, Masai, or Tim Bezbachenko. And they have had a plan, the Shanna plan. And <laughs> yeah, to your to your point, you know, the Canucks have not. They have sort of, you know, one year they tried this, the next year they went in this direction. They didn't want to rebuild and they kind of were rebuilding. You know, you, you touched on the young the young contracts and we're coming off of, you know, just mentioning, you know, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. But I was calling around yesterday and I get the sense that, you know, as much as most people think a long-term deal is great for sort of the the term and the security of having those young players... I get the sense that it's more likely than not that it's going to be a shorter term deal. Do you do you think the same thing? Are you hearing the same thing for both Hughes and Pedersen? I mean, from the Canucks' point of view, they probably want long term. To be completely honest, I mean, why, if you want to lock up lock up your guys and and, and try and have them, you know, long term contracts. But you know, we were talking about this at the rink the other day at practice with a couple of people, and it's do you, some people. Someone brought up the you know the whole um, comparison to Taves and Kane. And, you know, how, remember how they signed identical contracts and they announced it on that day and, and all that kind of stuff. I just don't see a scenario, even though they have the same agent, that, that that would happen. You know, they're two completely different players. Quinn Hughes has the opportunity to reset the market completely just from, you know, just from his, his alone in his, in his few years in the league already. And Elias Pettersson is going to want to get paid like a superstar, right? Yeah. So I think that for, for those two guys, I, I think that, you know, as much as people would want them to – you know, stay and, and, and obviously and, and have a, a short-term contract. I mean, for, for, for them, I, I, I would think that, you know, they would be thinking the shorter term and then cash in a little bit later. But for the Canucks, it's probably long-term. And when you look at it, I really don't believe at all that there's going to be any sense of, you know, a quote-unquote hometown discount here for either of these two players, you know? And I just think that that's, that's the way that, you know, the business is going now. Guys want to get paid. Guys want to, you know get their money and you know no one knows how long careers can be right everyone's one hit one injury away from you know your your career being over and obviously we all know hockey is such a fast game and you know things happen very quickly so i'm of the mind that it's canucks want long term the players probably don't but these two aren't going to take aren't, aren't going to take any sort of discount nor should they to be completely honest or if we got a couple texts uh, in the inbox throughout our show wondering what players might be making of uh, you know, the Jim Benning press conference. It's <laughs> hard for us to say because we're not with the team like yeah. usual. I mean, it's been the last year. We're not in the dressing room. We we don't get to see the guys like, uh, you know, a normal media contingent. Uh, yeah. My lean is generally that the players might not be quite as aware of, of this stuff as the fans are. But, I mean, going back to earlier this season, there was that, that feeling that the team was playing poorly in part because they didn't feel like there was a plan and they were upset about some of the messaging uh, from the offseason, you know, whether it was Markstrom, Tanev, or Stetcher not getting proper communication from the front office, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
how do you think a lot of the players reacted or at least you know the core guys react to uh what's playing that's what i guess been playing out now for over 24 hours since the since benning's presser yeah i mean look the guys probably didn't watch the presser obviously in meetings and stuff um before their practice yesterday but look they're they're normal and they're human and and you know for them it, it definitely means a lot so you know guys have their twitter accounts they have their instagram accounts they read they listen they you know they they watch you know television networks and stuff like that and you know they obviously kind of know what's going on um you know, I, I get a sense that, you know, from, from the guys within the team, it's, it's more about just trying to find a way to salvage this season. I think that there's a lot of pissed off guys in that room. And I think that it's the way things kind of went this year. You know, there was so much promise about this team coming out of the bubble and about what was going to happen. And then obviously we saw what happened in free agency, which or the lack of what happened in free agency, to be completely honest. And then I think that, you know, you go into this season and there's a very, very high expectation and like you guys talked about, you know, every single game is a national game. You know, it's your eyes are all on you. You're, there's no hiding. You can't go to Columbus and then go to Minnesota and hide for a couple of days where people don't really care about you. Every single game you're having eyes are on you across the country. And I think that that's the thing right now where, you know, there's a lot of frustration in the room, but the only thing that's going to get those guys out of it is those guys in the room. You know, Jim Benning can't, it's not one trade is not going to save this team. You know, you know I just, I trading Jake for Tannen for, for Heinen is not going to save this team. You know what I mean? It might move some money out and you hope that that's the case. And if it, that was the case, that what that, that was going to happen at like uh, last weekend, but obviously it didn't. Um, but, that, but that's where I'm at is the only people that can get themselves out of this are the, are those guys in that room. And they definitely do know it. And you know, it's a sense of playing for pride, man. It's pride, it's jobs and it's, and it's the future, you know, guys like Jay Beagle don't want to get bought out. You know, and, and, and I think that's, that, that can be said for a lot of guys on that team where it's, you know, you, you, you want to be serviceable and you want to show that you, you deserve a spot on this team next season. The fourth period's Irfan Gaffar joining us on air. A um, little bit of business. Canucks Leafs tonight at 4 o'clock, Irf. Um, Elias Pettersson did not play on Thursday night. Um, what are you hearing about his chances to be in the lineup this evening? Yeah, I don't think he's going tonight. I think that he's still out day-to-day, upper body. Uh, not exactly the extent of the in- I'm not exactly sure to the extent of the injury, but you know what, with Elias Pettersson, you know, if you need a couple extra days, you need a couple extra days. You take, take that time. You know, they, they, they won last night, or they, they won the other night. You know, they, they, they played well against the Leafs, to be completely honest. That was one of their most complete games of the year. So I think that, you know, if, if he needs another day just to kind of get his body right a little bit, then, then you let him take that. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that he is playing tonight. I know Nick Patan's out for the Leafs, so I think Boyd's coming back in. Um, and, um, I mean, obviously, the Canucks should go with Thatcher Demko. I'd be absolutely shocked if it wasn't. So, yeah. so there's that. But, um, yeah, I, I, look, I, I'm excited. I, I think the 4 o'clock start is fun. I think, obviously, with different circumstances, it'd be a lot more fun if we could go to games. Um, it's just, it, it, it really gets the best out of both cities and the worst, like I just tweeted. But, um, I, I, I'm so for the least Canucks rivalry that really isn't there, but it kind of is. <laughs> I just like taking shots at Toronto cause it's fun. And I'm, and I, oh. and I appreciate the shots back. I don't care. It is fun, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. And I, and to be honest, I think one of the things like, you know, and I think we can all relate to this cause we all grew up in Vancouver and earth. I know through your job, you spent a lot of time in Toronto. Toronto's not that bad a place. Like it's oh. actually like, you know, I, I actually saw a long, uh, like Don Taylor actually, who's like Mr. Vancouver and like a big part of his career in the marketing was how he hated Toronto. I, I saw him on the Jay and Dan podcast and he, he talked about actually how he like 
had to go to Toronto a bunch once he joined Sportsnet. And he's like, I actually really liked it. It's actually a great city. Like I talked to my wife about moving there. And so it's one of the sort of like very, very sort of like Vancouver misconceptions. Um, but really quickly, before we get back to sort of big picture here, Earth, um, on the ice, you talked about the frustration in the room. Have you gotten any clarity as to why this season got off to such a bad start? I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, there were the moves in the offseason, and I think we can all look at those. But, you know, there were clearly players across the board who were not playing up to expectation. Um, have you gotten any sort of indication as to why things just got off to such a poor start in Vancouver? I mean, I don't want to steal quotes from Jim Benning because that's going to get me ripped. But, like, I think the travel sucked <laughs> for them. It really did. It, it did, like, to be completely honest. It, it, it didn't favor them at all. Short training camp, no exhibition. Oh my god, I sound like Jim. Short training camp, no exhibition games, and I, and I think for a team that's young and kind of developing itself, still, I think you still want that. Like you know, you're not going full tilt in an Innistrad game, right? You're not going to hit someone. You're you're not really going to do that. So I think that some guys took a little bit longer to get into the game. JT Miller was one. I still don't like. I mean, he's putting up points, but I still don't think he's the player that he was when we when the Canucks traded for him last uh, last year at the draft. For sure, I, I think not I think at all. That, yeah, no, exactly, and I think that. So a point of a part of me believes that JT Miller, his kind of not being his usual self, kind of brought down his line mate a little bit, and mainly Elias Patterson. You know, Brock Brock came in and was unreal. He has been unreal for this team yeah. this season. I think that a little bit of JT Miller's game kind of brought down Patterson's game a bit, and then JT kind of figured it out a bit, and then Elias Patterson started to figure it out a bit as well. So JT Miller admitted that he was he's a frustrated hockey player, but sometimes you know playing frustrated isn't really the best case scenario. And you heard, you've heard Travis Green say that as well. Maybe you got to manage his minutes. Can't get him out there all the time, even though he wants to. So I think there's a lot of different things that kind of went into play for this team to not play well right out of the gate. And, and you know, like I just, they're just not that good of a team right now. They're, they're really not. If you look at them on paper, yeah, there's a lot of excitement. Nate Schmidt, cool. Travis Abnick, he's going to play with good news. Well, you got hurt. You did it. You know what I mean? So I just think that, you know, to be completely honest, like going into this season, we all had this huge expectation and we really didn't realize that the team on paper wasn't the team that was there before and bubble Demko, you're not going to get them every single game. It's that, that's just, that's just not realistic. And you hope that Braden Holpe would be, you know, a guy that, that, that came in and, you know, would find this resurgence in his career and get back to that type of Vesna caliber goaltending, but we're not seeing that either. So I think it's a combination of things. I think it's other guys, defensive, not, you know, making mistakes from guys that you don't think that it ever happens. Obviously, you know, you see mistakes all over the place. But, you know, like I said before, the only guys, the only people that are, can write their ship or can salvage the rest of the season are those guys that are on the ice every single night. And I know that the coaching staff is trying really, really hard to, you know, prepare them to play. And you know what? I execute the exact same game plan as he did the other night because that was a good game and, and they won. This is where I jump in and remind Alex specifically, but also the audience that uh, he was on board with me with the Canucks missing the playoffs this year and then flip-flopped when they added Travis Hamanick. That was the, the final piece of the puzzle <laughs> for Alex. It was that the Canucks I, were going to make the playoffs because of the Hamanick edition. I, I will well, take full responsibility for this. Earth. It was not, <laughs> But to be fair, it was the way that Hoglander played and sort yeah. of seemed to fill in the Toffoli role. And the addition of Hamannick that I felt made them the fourth best team. I will own the fact that they have looked like garbage, but just to clarify, it was Hoglander and Hamannick that swayed me from not playoff to playoff. No, you were putting twenty-seven right up to right next to twenty-two and thirty-three in the rafters. Hamannick, oh biggest addition of all time. No, no, I thought he would replace Chris Tanev like 
kind of apples to apples, and that is clearly not happened. So I, I'll own that for sure. What a nice story Hoglander's been, though. I mean, for a team that really hasn't had much of anything to really be happy about this season, and you look at the play of that kid, I mean, it, it, it's been pretty impressive for sure. Well, and, and to Jim's credit there, Earth, like actually when we talked about this in the first block, you know, drafting was the reason he was brought in here. Um, and it's not just been the first round picks, but I would say two of the brightest spots, you know, um, this season, or at least lately, have been second round picks in Thatcher Demko and, and Nils Hoglander. So I think Jim deserves credit for that, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, Jim's been a pretty good, uh, you know, evaluator of talent. You know, I, I'm not going to ever rip Jim for the guys that he's brought in for, to this organization. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of thought about, you know, uh, 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 Ole Levy and, you know, obviously Jake Vertanen and all that kind of stuff. But beyond that, drafting and, 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 the, and the, you know, the scouting of players has been pretty good. And, you know, for a lot of it has been, has been Jim. I know Judd Brackett, obviously, and that whole controversy and everything that's going around there. I don't want, I'm not even going to start that. But um, I think that, you know, what Jim has done and, you know, getting Elias Pedersen, getting Quinn Hughes, you know, Brock Besser and, and all these guys, like you just mentioned, Thatcher Demko. I think that that, you know, you have to give credit where credit's due. And, and, and you know, these players aren't on this team unless it's Jim Benning at the helm of being the general manager. Yep. Well, let me get you out of here on this then, Irf. Um, With that in mind, and with yeah. where the roster construction is, because I think it's fair to say outside of what was a surprising year this year, and it looks like the Canucks, at least at the halfway point, are in line for another high first-round pick, potentially. Um, Jim's Jim's skill set, is does it suit what this team needs going forward? And based on what you heard yesterday, where does this organization go from here? Can it, invo- can it include Jim Benning? Tough. Like, I thought there was a point that there was no way that Jim Benning was going to keep his job at some point this season. You know, something had to give. You know, when when they were when they lost six straight, and and you know, then the owner comes out and you know has a series of tweets, obviously a vote of confidence. And look, here's the thing that I'm going to say: Jim Benning is the general manager of this team until he isn't anymore. You know, he's still got a, he's got a couple years left on his contract. Um, do I think that there's going to be some really, really, really big time internal discussions and are they already happening? Have they already happened about what happens next season? Yes, I absolutely do believe that. And I think right now it's, are they confident enough in going into next season in having Jim negotiate the Quinn Hughes and Elias Pedersen contracts? I think that that's, that's what the discussion is right now is, is do they believe in Jim's ability to be able to do that? Not just for the rest of this season, but obviously in years to come, because, Right now, this offseason is one of the most important, not in franchise history, but it's, it's up there, right? Because you have two guys that, you know, you need to sign and you need to get here and you need to get them on deals where you need to look at the rest of your team and say, okay, how do we surround these two players mixed in with our other young guys that we can go and compete? Because you need to stop, you know, overpaying for guys that really aren't producing, you know? And, and I think that that's one of the things where you look at other GMs around the league. Any GM that comes in here is going to want both buyouts. Let's just put it that way, right? Right, right away. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that that's and I think that that's that, that's that's an approach that um, ownership only has the final say on, right? So who so who yeah. are we here to say as to what's going to happen? But look, I, I think that a lot of discussion is still happening, and, and I think that same goes for Travis Green. He's the coach of the team until he isn't anymore. Doesn't have an extension yet. Seattle mm-hmm. needs a coach, right? So there's all these things that that need to go into consideration when you're looking at this team just beyond the guys on the ice. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a crazy year for for a bunch of reasons, and uh, we'll see. You know, Toronto, Vancouver. There's the 
the, the potential for some fun to, to happen tonight. So uh, enjoy the game, Irv. Thanks for making the time, and we'll talk soon, all right? All right, guys. Be well. Stay safe. Irfan Gafar, heard regularly on Sportsnet 650 and a contributor for the fourth period. All right, coming up next, we'll wrap up the show with our final thoughts, uh, our weekly spotlights, and our weekly look-aheads as well. We'll do that next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, and you're listening to the official home of the Vancouver Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. Wrapping up on air this week, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, live Sportsnet 650. Pretty fiery show today, Alex. A lot of people with strong opinions about uh, the Vancouver Canucks, about general manager Jim Benning. Uh, ahead of a Leafs-Canucks game night, or game day, I guess, afternoon game for Canucks and uh, Toronto. Uh, Four o'clock start, coverage on Sportsnet 650 rolls on after us, Jamie Dodd for an hour, and then uh, right into the official pregame show, Sat Shaw, Bick Nazar. Uh, always fun when Toronto's in town, regardless of the circumstances, but, I mean, we've been talking about it basically from the jump, but... I mean, the tech's still coming in, 650, 650. People are invested. And that's, you know, the number one thing in any sort of business. Are you invested? And clearly, the Canucks, after 50 years of not getting the final result done, um, still has people that care. And yesterday was another example of people voicing their opinions, on a lot of sides, we're getting a lot of feedback. I think the majority of the feedback is that most people would like a change. Most people would like a plan at the very least. Uh, there's people sort of in the middle saying that, um, you know, addressing the things that they think Jim Benning and the management group have done well over the last number of years. And there are still some people on the on the extreme end that say that Jim Benning needs more time, that they believe in, in his vision, so to speak. Um, so that there is a, a wide variety uh, at least on, on both polls in terms of what we're getting. But I do think, by and large, the fan base thinks that a change is in order. Yeah. Um, yesterday, in my opinion, was the smoking gun of what had been felt with this organization for, depending on who you are, a number of years. And I think there was a feeling like, we're not sure what they're doing, how competent are they, what's the plan and there was always sort of, there wasn't really, ev- you know, there was sort of circumstantial evidence. You could point to this, you could point to that. Yesterday to me was smoking gun, was the smoking gun where it was like, we don't know what we're doing and we're not taking advantage of the situation and we don't know what we're doing and we, and we don't have a plan. And I think that's why to me yesterday was such a significant day. Um Listen, we've we've Jim's been here for seven years. We've all heard Jim press conferences. Um, he's not the greatest at public speaking. Uh, he's not the greatest messenger. But look, Bill Belichick in New England is not a great communicator with the public. That's you know, like listen, if Jim Benning was great at what he did, 
and communicated in the way that he did, I think that fans would be willing to look past it. I think it would still be a good idea for the organization to have, you know, a president in there that could speak to the public and do that. And to be fair, that's what they had originally in Trevor Linden. Yeah, that was the original plan. Yes, but at some point, ownership, you know, um, however you want to see it, there was a division in opinions between Linden and Benning. Ownership picked Benning, and they've moved forward. Um, a couple things that I do think we should get to just before we kind of maybe move on to Can I just add up. something about Bill Belichick? Please, yeah. You're right. The results are the reason that he can get away with that, but it, it is also calculated because when Bill Belichick does stuff on NFL Network and he's talking about Lawrence Taylor or he's doing yep. these big breakdowns, his delivery is still pretty dry, but he can be incredibly insightful. His passion for football is unbelievable. Um, maybe Jim Benning's in the same situation. We actually did get a text earlier asking if there was any possibility that Jim Benning's performance yesterday was calculated and he had done that on purpose to take the pressure off because uh, we haven't been talking about Travis Green or talking about the team as much today. Uh, I don't buy it in this situation, but... Okay. You know, with Here, Belichick's example, it, it is that is, I guess, part of the equation. Here's what I'll say. I don't think it's going to be the last you're going to hear about it, and I don't think it'll be the last you hear about it today. There are There is a feeling that there was a level of, I don't want to say calculation in what he said yesterday, but I think, and I said this in the first half hour, I think Jim knows that Jim's done. And to be fair, I think ownership should have let him go already. They're letting him blow in the wind. They're using him as a human shield. And he had to go out there yesterday and take punches. And I think that Jim's sort of like, look, this isn't great. Um, I'm taking these punches. I'm not going to quit because I've got two years left on my contract, nor should I. And, you know, it's up to ownership at this point to, to, to look at the situation. I mean, the only reason, this is my opinion, the only reason Jim Benning is still in that role is that ownership doesn't want to spend any money. And, you know, and listen, I'll let them off off the hook a little bit in the sense that I think they're not the only owners that are trying to get through a season right now without spending more money than they need to. But unfortunately, their team has fallen flat to an extent that most haven't. And they're now being sort of put in a an interesting position. Just just really quickly going back to, to Earth's point, and we're talking about the Pedersen and Hughes contracts. Um, and rightfully... I, and listen, just to clarify what I mentioned about offer sheets in the first hour, in the first hour, because we had a couple of texts. Um, I don't think I can conveyed it as clearly, but I'm, I'm I was talking about Pedersen in the yeah. sense that I understand that um, Hughes is a 10.2C; he's not eligible for offer sheets. But if the negotiations drag on, my concern would be if another team comes in and says, "Hey, like we'll." We'll give you the money you're looking for, but we'll give you like a five-year term or a four-year term that walks Pedersen right to free agency. Because like basically the Canucks are looking at this and saying either we'll sign you to eight years or we'll sign you to three years. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go on the middle ground because it's not really a win for them. But if Pedersen signs an offer sheet with someone else, that that's where the Canucks, they can match it, but it's they're matching something that they never wanted to, to sign originally. But... The significance of these two signings, I'm not sure the Canucks have ever had two players at this time in their career that you, like at this point, I think it's safe to say you'd be more disappointed than not if that, if 40 and, uh, what numbers use? 43. 43, thank you. If those two numbers aren't retired at the end of their careers in Vancouver, I think that would be 
a disappointment at this point. Knowing what you have, their skill set, that type of thing. That's where the bar is. For sure. And you look at the numbers that are retired in Vancouver. Stan Smeal, I'm not sure that they thought early on. Like, Stan was a worker. He was, you know... Yeah, he, Trevor set the, Lind- he set the tone for, I guess, the first 20 years of the franchise. I know he wasn't there for the first 10 years, but like for he's sure. the, he is the player of the first 20 years of the franchise. Yeah, Naslund was, you know, a player they acquired from Pittsburgh who was a high, you know, a mid first round pick who was disappointing. And his latter part of his career was surprising based on how the first part went. The Sedins, we all know what happened with them. Like their careers were great, but they didn't start off that well. Burray was like a rocket. So, yeah. you know, Burray's maybe the anomaly. And then Linden's sort of somewhere in between because he was a second overall pick, was a talented player, but not sort of superstar. Yeah. Um, but when you look at Pedersen and Hughes, you're thinking these are this is rare air for a franchise that's in its 51st season. And so there is some significance that these are two of the biggest contracts that this organization is going to sign. Um, and, and the other thing that I learned yesterday, and I think this is out there, um, if not, I guess we're reporting it, is that there? I think there is a trend that players are going to be looking for shorter-term deals in this environment. Mm-hmm. And what I heard yesterday is that Andrei Svechnikov in Carolina had turned down $60 million in a wow. long-term offer. He's, okay. he's decided that he doesn't want long-term money. He wants to wait and see how the pandemic and the TV contract and everything play out. So he's what he's going to do is he's going to do a shorter-term deal, and then he's going to take his chance at doing a longer-term t- deal after that. And as I said in the first hour... I believe that makes the most sense for both the Canucks and the players in this situation. I don't think that that's concerning. I wouldn't look into that as a negative. In some part, the the Canucks roster construction, their cap space, it makes more sense to get these guys on a lower cap hit. I don't think you can pay them 11 or 12 million next year, um, even with the term and the security that you're going to get. So I I think that's, that's worth mentioning as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's going to be, I mean, I, I've been saying it for a few weeks now. The future of this franchise is hinging on on those two contracts. Uh, they're not UFA. It's not quite like when the Sedins hit UFA and there was a real fear that they might leave, though. I mean, this fan base is going to be divided. I mean, sports fans are, are very opinionated. There's going to be people on both sides. There were people when the Sedins went to UFA feeling yep. like they should not re- be re-signed, that they should be let go. Ultimately, uh, you know, they, they get matching contracts. They stay here. It's the most successful run in Canucks franchise history. Um, these contracts don't have necessarily the same weight because of the the likelihood that either player leaves or in Hughes' case, you know, cannot be offer sheeted. And in Pedersen's case, uh, we, we did see the Ajo offer sheet a couple of years ago, but it's, it's, yeah. still, it's still unlikely. That said, in a salary cap world, there needs to be a plan so the ducks are in a row of when these contracts are starting, when they're going to expire, the types of players that can be brought in to supplement the core. Um, the, the teams that you see have success or are able to do that. Or in the case of Vegas, they were able to basically build it from the ground up. Yeah. The, the last thing that I have to say before we move on to other topics, and I know that we'd like to talk about the Hawks and, and Brent Seabrook amongst a, a few other things is if they do make a change from Jim, and I think that based on what happened yesterday, um, I think it only adds another significant log to this fire and, and a question whether, you know, I, I don't know if Jim will be the GM when we do this show next week. I, I think yesterday was that profound. Um, 
I know ownership would like to not spend the money and would like to try and get to the end of the year, but I think yesterday may play out in a scenario where they, they realize they have to make a change. I've said this before. I said this a few weeks ago. Based on ownership's history in this market, they need to have somebody with experience. Um, whether that's in the president role or if that's in the GM role, depending on their their situation. But I look at it and think there's there's not that many candidates out there that fit the bill. Um, you know, I think one of them is Jim Rutherford, who I think gives them offers them a short term fit. You know, potentially three years to sort of get themselves out of the current situation. I I can report this that Dean Lombardi's not coming here. He's, I think he would be a candidate, but Dean Lombardi is not going to come to this organization. He's not going to work for these owners. We've talked about Mike Gillis. I think Mike Gillis is a very interesting candidate. And I think Mike needs, the opportunity lines up in that Mike would like to get back in the game. I think he'd be a good fit. It was the best era in Canucks hockey. You've just seen Calgary do something similar with Daryl Sutter. I do wonder about Mike. And then the only person who I think who hasn't been a GM before that could be a candidate is Lawrence Gilman because he's worked under the Aquilinis. He knows the environment. He knows the challenges. Um, and, you know, I think he could be potentially. But outside of that, you're looking at, at least right now, unless some other people get let go, it's it's not an abundant market for replacements for Jim. And again, you know, I've I've talked about the reality of, of what Mike Gillis returning here could look like um, for a whole host of reasons. I'm, I'm amazed that he's never been given another opportunity. Um, I never thought I'd be saying that I think he has an opportunity to come back to Vancouver, but the way the cards are folding, I think he's at least, I think they need to give him a look. And yeah, it, it's crazy that we've gotten to that point. Okay. Let's do, uh, let's do Chicago. All right. Um, let me ask you this. When you think of significance with the Blackhawks, sort of think of like the Mount Rushmore or like tiers of hockey players, even just like involving players. Like, do you have Taves higher than Kane or Kane higher than Taves or do you have them Ooh. equal? Um, that's a good question. Uh, wow. Uh, I, I, I go with talent first generally. So Patrick Kane is a more talented player than Jonathan yep. Taves. Uh, I know a lot of hockey people will cite you know, the leadership and a lot of the things that Jonathan Taves does on the ice as well, you know, taking face-offs, being the center, defensive responsibility, all of that. This is just my basic philosophy uh, yeah, no, no. on sports in general. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the talent uh, because I just don't think that you can teach that stuff. That's not to say Jonathan Taves is not a player that is deserving of, of the accolades no. that will come later in his career, but I would, I would go Kane. What about you? It's funny. I... I don't disagree with you at all. Like, I don't think there's much of an argument that I think Kane has been a better player. It, but what made me think of it was that in my perception, Jonathan Taves is still maybe higher on the Mount Rushmore, if you will, like within the hockey world. And I was trying to figure out why I thought that. And there's an element in, in specifically with Patrick Kane, he's been this unbelievable talent. Um, I think, you know, it was talked about earlier this week. I think he has become the currently the greatest American hockey player that there has been. But for some reason, I don't know if he's ever been looked at like the other greats. And I don't know if that's because of size. I don't know if that's because he never sort of had this off the ice maturity or wore the mantle. 
But it was something I thought about earlier this week when he scored his, you know, I think he had his 400th goal last Sunday. Yep. Um, and it does really put him in rare air. But for some reason, he's sort of, I don't know if he's ever been looked at as one of the big boys. And I think for a while there, Taves was, even though, you know, at this point of their careers, I do, like you said, I think it's hard to argue that, that Kane has been the better player. Yeah, I, I, it might be uh, the emphasis on two-way play. Uh, he's been such a, a strong offensive player, and then I do think that the you know the off ice stuff, the incidents, um, yeah. the the stories behind that, that doesn't mean he he still gets talked about. He still gets held up as a, as one of the better players in the league. But from a legacy perspective, that stuff probably doesn't doesn't help. Uh, I mean, it's something that you know you, you feel like when you talk about a player like that. But that's definitely part of the story. Uh, you know, the, the Buffalo incident, and I think the other incidents uh, at the university. Yeah. If, no, uh, for sure. I think the University of Wisconsin. Um, he's he's. This is going to sound more demeaning than I mean it to, but he's felt less mature and more childlike away from the ice. Than, yeah, you know, in in that regard. Um, I was going to ask really quickly. Um, Brent Seabrook announced that he's not going to return to play, um, and he had a remarkable career with the Blackhawks. Um, not quite at the level of of Kane and Taves and, and maybe probably to some degree, not to Duncan Keith his you know, at times defense partner. Yeah. But he was definitely one of the members of that core that ended up winning three Stanley cups and um, just wanted to acknowledge the sort of end of his career. Somebody who grew up in Delta BC. Um, yep. and, and I know when I, when I saw the press release the other day, I, I thought back to, um, I was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time around the, the Blackhawks and, the thing that I didn't realize from the outside was how much Brent Seabrook was looked at as leadership in that room. And and guys like Taves looked to Seabrook. And he maybe didn't get as much of the notoriety. He maybe wasn't as flashy a player on the ice. But within that room and within that group, he really, in some ways, was the captain to the captain. And, you know, there, I don't think there's any better example than... There was that second round in 2013, the year they ended up going on to win their second Stanley Cup. They're in the second round of the playoffs. They're down 2-1 to Detroit. They're in game four. I think it's in Detroit. And Taves has just, like, he's not had a great series. He's had an awful first period. He takes three minor penalties. And he has a, he goes to the penalty box after his third, and he has a bit of a meltdown. And in a rare moment, Seabrook skates across the ice and, like, goes into the penalty box and you can see him like the, the cameras show it. He visibly is like, Hey, get it together. We need you, you know, da, 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 da. Anyway, the Hawks lose that game. They go down three, one to Detroit, but they battle back. They get to game seven and Seabrook scores the OT winner to get them onto the third round. And they end up going on and winning their second Stanley cup in, in three years. And, um, I just thought that series of events, the fact that he was rewarded in game seven. Um, I know I had a chance to talk to Jonathan about it and, um, yeah, he's, you know, that, that to me is what my memory will be of, of Brent Seabrook and, um, just a, just a terrific career. Um, I think he's on the bubble, whether he's a hall of famer, but three Stanley cups and somebody who, who grew up and moved hockey forward in the lower mainland and, and within BC and, um, you know, the best to him, his family, I think he's someone I would expect to have a role in the Blackhawks organization going forward, you know? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, you're talking about over 1,100 games. Uh, you look at the prime years of his career, you know, 35, 45-point kind of guy on the blue line. 
and meant a lot to to those groups and yeah. played played at a high level for for Canada as well. Um, he was on the 2010 team. Yep, 2010 Olympic team. Yeah, yeah there aren't a ton a of guys that uh, are from this area that have had that kind of impact. Right, the number of Hall of Famers from the Lower Mainland is 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 pretty small. Uh, you're looking at you know Paul Correa, Glenn yep. Anderson, Cam Neely. It's a short list. It is. Um, don't know if he'll get in, but uh, definitely you know, there's been this generation of players that have come in. I don't know if you saw the goal Matt Barzal scored earlier today. It no. was an incredible goal. If you haven't seen it, if you're listening, check it out. Un- unbelievable skill. The guy's you know, about as skilled as anybody in the league. Uh, and Seabrook was at the start of that, you know, his first season coming out of the lockout. Uh, yep. Basically played for the last 15 years. Played on good, I mean, at the early parts of his career, played on some bad Chicago teams. Grew with that group to, to be an important part of their Stanley Cups. And the impact that that's had, you know, on, on local hockey in the lower mainland. Um I don't want to overstate it because it's not like, you know, it's not like he by himself created a generation of all these players, but yeah. it is, is it, it's symbolic or it's at least indicative of, uh, of a shift and the, the players um, that have come through the lower mainland since him uh, that are you know, younger, that are making an impact in the league. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, starting there, him, you know, or also like a guy like Andrew Ladd, uh, yep. guys that grew up around here that, it showed people, I think, what it took to to truly break through. And now there is a generation of you know, local players that are having an impact. We're going to see, I mean, Canucks have had Jake Furtana for a while, and, and Toronto's got Morgan Riley and, and Alex Kerfoot, two guys from yep. West Van that are, you know, Morgan Riley's an impact player for them. Kerfoot's a, a pretty uh, significant um, support player on that team too. And there's, there's a bunch of them kind of dotted throughout the league. Uh, it's a point of pride, I think. Well, as, as much as those Hawks teams were hated in Vancouver because of the, the sort of rivalry that the Canucks were coming out of the wrong, sort of coming out on the wrong end of at the time, I think it was that first cup team, the 2010 team. I think they had five players from the lower mainland. That was, you know, they had Troy Brower, um, to your point, Andrew Ladd. They had Seabrook, I think Colin Fraser. Um, I'm trying to think of who the last one was. But yeah, they had they had a huge, you know, lower mainland presence and in some ways that was that was great for hockey cuz when you look at it I, you know outside of you know the hawks definitely had a dynasty there three cups in six years you know even the penguins i'm not sure had the same dynasty they won back to back but there's always that feeling with dynasty that it's three you know and three in a in a short period of time and um, the way hockey sort of had a renaissance in chicago was was huge for hockey in the us and and all throughout and uh, as I said, I don't think Brent Seabrook got his credit for that, but he was a big part of it. And um, yeah, just a terrific career. All right, that's it for us. Thanks to our technical producer, Joel Gaudet. Thanks to Irfan Gafar for joining us. If you missed the interview, do check it out on our podcast. Coming up next, more Canucks pregame. It's Canucks Central Saturday on Sportsnet 650. We'll be back next week. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.